0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Kevin Tran. Kevin is a PhD student in the Department of Chemical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Kevin, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me, Sam. Uh, So, Kevin, you're in chemical engineering. You've practiced chemical engineering. How did you come to get involved in the application of machine learning?
1: Uh, I kind of fell into it with the research that I'm doing. And so we are looking for new materials, and we need an intelligent way to screen them. And machine learning is actually one of the tools that we found that uh, apparently does that pretty well.
0: You're using that in your graduate work. Have you used machine learning prior to grad school?
1: I have not, actually. So um, everything that we're doing now is kind of learned on the spot, so to say. And so it's, it's new for us, and we still have a lot of room for improvement. But so far, it's working pretty well. Awesome.
0: So tell us a little
1: bit about the problem that you're trying to solve there. Yeah. So at a high level, it's really about sustainable energy, right? And that's actually the reason that uh, I started doing this research. And so the idea is uh, to help make what we call solar fuels and solar chemicals. So what that means is uh, we take energy derived from the sun. So let's say um, solar cells. And uh, one of the problems right now is that when we take solar cells and make electricity out of that, uh, if we have a lot generated during the day and we can't use it, then it's kind of wasted, right? So there are a lot of people doing really nice research into figuring out how to store that energy. Um, Batteries is one method. The method that we are interested in is storing it in chemical bonds. So what we would do is we would take something like uh, carbon dioxide and water, Take that and the electricity we get from the sun and convert that into more valuable fuels or chemicals like uh, methane or ethylene or hydrogen. And then in turn, we can use those uh, for whatever application that we want. And so part of that problem to actually turn those uh, chemicals into more valuable chemicals is that we need good catalysts to do so. And right now, our research focuses on finding a good catalyst to do those reactions. And it involves a lot of computer simulations uh, that we have to do intelligently. And so we're using machine learning to help us decide which simulations to do iteratively.
0: Okay. Uh, So to dig into that a little bit more, you're trying to store solar energy and chemical bonds uh in some ways that sounds a little bit like what a battery is doing also uh, it's, a, yeah, it's it's fundamentally simple. a chemical thing now or you could you know while the sun is up use the solar energy to kind of power some chemical reaction uh and and that's kind of where your uh need for some kind of catalyst comes into play
1: yeah yeah exactly so the the setup we have actually looks very similar to a battery right or the, the physical setups and so um, if you think of a car battery right mm-hmm. it it has a solution and it has an anode and a cathode as in more or less two metal rods on either end and it can either generate electricity or it can um, you can put energy electricity into it to um, store that energy in more or less chemical form. And so our system, what it does is instead of storing the energy in the the battery itself, it generates uh, methane and fuels from carbon dioxide and the water that is in the battery itself. Well, in this case, it's the electrical chemical cell. You
0: just described it as an electrical chemical cell. Um, Yes. And so it's it's not like you could use that energy to power some kind of machine to – you know, extract some other compound or fuel, but rather you're doing this all chemically.
1: Yes. Yep. That's the idea. The issue there is uh, in order to perform that reaction on a large scale, that could help a lot of people. Uh, We need it to be fast and efficient and affordable. And the catalysts that we have right now uh, can meet some of those criteria, but not a lot of them. And so we're looking for more materials that we can scale up to a commercial scale. And that's the problem. We have right now.
0: In order to do this, you need these these catalysts. What? How do you measure the performance of one of these catalysts?
1: Yeah, so there are a lot of metrics for performance that experimentalists usually look at, uh, one of which we call activity, but the idea is how fast it can actually drive the reaction. So uh, let's say one catalyst can transform uh, one kilojoule of energy And it would take maybe a few seconds. And another catalyst, it could take hours. So we want the catalyst that takes it a few seconds to actually do that reaction. Uh, Another example is uh, the efficiency. So just because you put one kilojoule of energy in does not mean you get one kilojoule out. It's often much less than that. And so certain catalysts uh, are more efficient about transferring that energy um, than others. And there's often a balance between those two and even other properties, such as how expensive the material is, right? And so there's a lot of things that we're, we plan to play with and look at. But uh, the work we have right now, since we're just starting out, only looks at the first thing that I mentioned, which is how fast the reaction can go. What's the space of possible catalysts look like? Uh, it's a good question. So uh, one of the issues that the field has right now is that in order to solve this problem, we're more or less looking at most of the periodic table right and so there are a lot of (laughs) elements there a lot of iterations that go through and even if you choose let's say uh, two metals there's still the question of what ratio do you have between those two metals right Uh, what if you have three metals what ratios do you have there and so what we have is a really rough first pass of looking at um, two or three metal combinations sometimes four for about 30 different elements on the periodic table uh, for select Combinations of ratios between them.
0: And so in that sense, it sounds kind of like a constrained optimization type of a problem. You're trying to figure out how to get the, the greatest yield from this set of materials that you're working with?
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, it's kind of a difficult problem because the search space explodes geometrically as you add more materials, right? And more um, composition blends. And so what we have is Even though it feels large and seems large to us, it's really the tip of the iceberg of what we could do, right?
0: At at what level are you modeling this? Like, are you modeling this at – and forgive my ignorance here if I'm not asking this correctly, but are you kind of – when you're searching for high-yield catalysts, are you modeling – atomic interactions subatomic interactions molecular interactions or could you do all of this you know what you need at the level of you know just kind of the things you might see on a periodic table
1: yeah yeah so what we are doing specifically is modeling things at the atomic level and so um there's a type of theory in chemistry it's called density functional theory so what this does it more or less uses um quantum mechanics, to take a set of atoms and predict the properties of those atoms. And using those properties, uh, those are actually indicative of the performance of the catalyst. And so we take a catalyst, we perform density functional theory simulations, really, around how the atoms interact with each other. And that will tell us if that catalyst or those atoms really will perform well in uh, an electrochemical cell. Uh, And so how long do these simulations take to run? Uh, The issue here is that these simulations take anywhere from hours to days or the big ones, sometimes even weeks, to run a single one. Oh, wow. Can you give us a high-level understanding
0: of how these DFT simulations work? What are they doing to determine, ultimately, whether these catalysts are going to be high-yield?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, to answer that, we can back up a second to talk about how the catalysts work. So... Let's take, for example, we want to turn carbon dioxide into methane, right? So it's CO2 going to CH4. Um, That doesn't happen in one step. It happens in a series of chemical reactions. And we know from um, chemistry experts that the elementary reaction, we call it, the smaller reaction that matters most to convert CO2 to methane, is actually uh, adding one hydrogen onto carbon monoxide, And so what that means is how strongly that carbon monoxide binds onto the catalyst is really important. So let's say carbon monoxide um, binds onto the catalyst very strongly, so it will react quickly. But once it's done reacting, it'll actually just stay there, never come off, and you will never actually have any product. Conversely, if carbon monoxide binds too weakly, it will never go onto the catalyst in the first place, and therefore it will never react. So there's kind of a Goldilocks effect where the catalyst needs to have a sweet spot of energy in the middle. So that's where density functional theory comes in. Uh, We call it DFT. And so uh, given a configuration of atoms and how the carbon monoxide is sitting on a surface of a catalyst, DFT can tell us how strongly that carbon monoxide is sticking to the surface. And that is indicative of how well it's going to perform.
0: Presumably, it's you're using a simulator because the the laws that govern this are either you know too ill defined to apply directly, or um, are at too granular a level to apply directly.
1: That's interesting. So when we call them simulations, we just say that because it's what it feels like. But what we're actually using is quantum mechanics, and so we know the laws that govern how everything interacts. The reason it takes so long is it because it's really just a math problem solving a lot of partial differential equations simultaneously, and that just takes a really long time.
0: You recently published a paper on your work in this field in, uh, in nature, nature catalysis, and you're using active learning to help solve this problem. Where does active learning come into play?
1: Yeah, so we have a set of elements that we want to look at, right? And they can have different varying composition space, as we talked about before. And we want to actually keep running simulations to keep finding new materials for experimentalists to test out. So, our whole workflow is designed around the idea of we want to continuously find new materials for other people to look at. So, that's where the active part comes in uh, because it, it feels almost iterative, right? So, the more simulations we have, the more data we have, and the more data we have, the more uh, we get a better idea of how to what sites to perform next. So, in this case, what we're doing is let's say we start out with a, a small database of a few hundred simulations. We use machine learning uh, on on those as a training set, and from there we can predict how well the other catalysts that we have not simulated are, uh, how well they will perform. And once we have an idea of that, we can pick the ones that we think will perform well uh, as per the machine learning model and actually just do those simulations, get more data, and then perform the regressions again and just continue that loop. And that's how we're using active learning, in a sense, to find new materials.
0: You've got uh, this database of materials that you've run these simulations on, uh, and they're characterized by their different kind of material properties and... Uh, Well, actually, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, how they're characterized. Are they, you know, is it strictly at the atomic level or are there other material properties that you're using to uh, ultimately become features in your machine learning models?
1: Yeah. So what we do is um, we look at the location of where the carbon monoxide is sitting on the surface. So if you can imagine um, how the atoms are set up, the carbon monoxide could be bonded to, let's say, one platinum atom on a surface, and that platinum atom could be bound to maybe eight other platinum atoms. So what we feed as features to our regression model is uh, how many atoms that the carbon monoxide is bound to. So in this case, it'll be one platinum. Uh, how many atoms that the are in the next nearest neighbor or the next outer shell. So in this case, it'll be uh, eight platinums. We also look at the identity, the chemical identity of those atoms. So in this case, it'll be platinum. If there's more than one metal, we consider, uh, let's say it's platinum and aluminum. We consider the aluminum too. We also look at the chemical properties of those elements. So platinum and aluminum have what we call electronegativity, which is how, how much they like electrons. <laughs> and we look at that. And uh, we also look at what we call the atomic number, so where it is on the periodic table. And one of the interesting features that we have is um, the average binding energy of that absorbate on the material. So in this sense, let's say we already have a database of maybe 20 calculations of platinum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we take... Uh, an average of those binding energies and that number is associated with platinum it kind of gives a feel for how strongly it binds to platinum in general but we extend we take that number and we feed it into our alloys and so when we have uh, a material that has aluminum platinum it has a feel for how strongly it binds to platinum and aluminum and it sort of averages those together in a way when we do the regression
0: Okay, and that's that number that you described earlier as uh, wanting to have that Goldilocks effect. That one needs to be kind of just right.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And so you've got uh, all of these as features that come out of the materials that you're using. The simulations themselves, are those uh, only used as your your labels, your answers, or are you also gaining information from those simulations that you're using as feature input?
1: Uh, So the simulations that we're performing effectively give us the labels uh, for our regression models. Um, At the same time, the so those labels are the binding energy of uh, carbon monoxide on a particular um, site on a catalyst. A site being uh, a location where the carbon monoxide could just attach onto the catalyst.
0: I was mainly curious whether... The simulation was just giving you that, you know, that answer, that binding energy that you use as labels, or if the simulation was also kind of illuminating other characteristics of the, the material pairs uh, or combinations, you know, either qualitatively or quantitatively that you could also use as, you know, input signal.
1: Sure. So the simulations themselves really just give us the labels. If we want to look for more, uh, holistic information around what materials might work well, we actually just look at our database of simulations. So I guess for each individual one, we don't really glean much chemical information from that, but from seeing patterns uh, arise in how many simulations work well given a certain alloy, uh, we glean information from there.
0: You've got this regression model that essentially allows you to take unknown combinations of materials and guess what the binding energy will be without running through these really long uh, simulations. Is that that kind of the general goal there?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what our surrogate model is doing, our machine learning model. Yep. And then you're using that uh,
0: to allow you to kind of constrain the search space for new elements. How do you tie that surrogate model into the active learning piece or the, the piece that you're using to constrain your search space?
1: Yeah, so the very naive way to do this is to uh, take the model, evaluate it across our entire search space and pick the materials and the absorption sites that actually would work best. Uh, but there's the idea... That and,
0: and, we'll, and if I can interrupt, that sure. should even be an improvement over running these simulations every time,
1: right? Yeah, it's... it's uh, an intelligent way of doing the simulations, right? So, what people do in the current field is they use their intuition to decide what materials to simulate next. Uh, we're here; we're actually using machine learning predictions to um, make that decision instead of in human intuition.
0: How well do you trust the surrogate model? When do you, when you run it, and it tells you that something should have this kind of just right bonding energy, do you trust it or do you? use that to determine what you should actually simulate?
1: So that's a really good question. At the current state of the model, um, I trust it with a grain of salt, right, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But what I really trust are the simulations. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point of our workflow isn't necessarily to make a machine learning model that can predict everything perfectly. It's really to have the machine learning model decide what simulations to run next, which will build our database in an intelligent way.
0: Right, right. And so you were starting to walk through uh, that process and how you apply the machine learning given your surrogate model.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I think we discussed the naive way to do it, which is to use the model to find the best candidate and to just run that. Um, But if you do that, you run in, There's the idea of uh, exploration versus exploitation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk about that quite a bit on the show. Yeah, yeah. So that's pure exploitation. And so uh, there's a a decent amount of research into ways to uh, balance the two. Uh, For our workflow, we had a quick and dirty way to try and balance this where uh, we actually made a Gaussian distribution that is centered at our optimal point. Right, so let's say our optimal point is maybe 0.1 for the the binding energy. Uh, So we made a Gaussian distribution centered there with a certain standard deviation, and for our search space, we use that distribution to assign a probability of how of selecting a new candidate material to simulate. So let's say if something was at 0.1, or the model thought it was exactly at 0.1 or optimal, then it would assign the highest probability to picking that. And the further out you go from that space, the lower the probability gets. And so once we assign um, an array of probabilities to our possible search space, then we just pick them at random. Ah, So in in a way, we would focus on the area that we're interested in, but still uh, in a way stochastically choose other materials that we might not normally choose.
0: Thus retaining some of that explore characteristic. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and then the active learning piece of this is what specifically?
1: Uh, so the active learning piece is the process of iteratively deciding new points to simulate for us, right? And so we have this loop constantly going. So the active part is the, the fact that we're doing a regression and then a prediction and then a query or simulation in our case to get us more data. Which yields another regression, et cetera, et cetera. So the active part is the the iterative nature of our workflow.
0: Mm, so, so you're running this kind of in serial, uh, and then each time you uh, you produce this distribution of possible materials to simulate based on the test that you've done previously. You pick one, you run that, uh, and then you uh based on the result you put that in your distribution you pick another one you run that and you keep feeding these re- these results back into uh your your database your distribution of things to try exactly exactly oh very cool very cool and so how do you characterize the results that you saw with the paper
1: yeah and so that's an interesting question because we've been playing with around with different methods to Uh, actually analyze our database so we uh, our main three methods that we thought of we actually put inside the paper Uh, one is to just make a list of materials that uh, are within an acceptable range of performance and give that to experimentalists and so we have that in the paper Uh, another way is to create a um, almost a heat map a two-dimensional heat map of what materials would work well. So on one axis would be one set of elements, so aluminum, platinum, gold, copper, and the other axis is those same elements. And so each point would be uh, a blend of those elements. So the grid would be maybe choose copper and aluminum, and from there we can color code the grid uh, according to the fraction of the, the binding sites that would work well. And so that was another way that we could look at it. And the third way is actually simply using t to cluster all of the points that we've done simulations on. Uh, and then color-code them by their energy and look for clusters that have the appropriate uh, energy for us. And look for the themes within those clusters and recommend that those materials be studied.
0: And so you've got these three methods. How do you... How do you know that this method is helping you? Are you finding, are you able to, you know, ultimately, is it the number of kind of candidate combinations that you're able to find per unit of your own time as a researcher? Or is there some other kind of fundamental measure here?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, The two that I kind of lean towards are the number of candidates we find over time. So we, have, we actually have a plot of that in the paper as well. And um, over time, we can see that number rising and masking and waning according to the, the things, the way we modify our workflow. Uh, the other way is really, I guess, the real way is to see if any of the candidates we have actually work and, uh, in an experimental setup. And so for the, that case, experimental validation, we do have collaborators that are testing some of these materials and we actually have another paper in review right now uh, where our collaborators tested one of the things that we've uh, suspected to be uh, performing well and it turns out it did and so that worked out perfectly in our minds and so we're really excited to get that paper out and uh you might be seeing that in the next few months or so
0: nice And, and it doesn't sound like it would be enough to just demonstrate one there's some notion of kind of demonstrating that this is a, you know, more efficient or more repeatable process than, you know, what folks usually do. And that goes back to, um, yeah, have you, have you produced enough candidates and had those, uh, go through the experimental process in order to be able to make claims around that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this is the candidates that we found so far, Uh, We found them relatively recently, so we are still in the process of uh, testing them with experimental collaborators. One thing that does make us feel better about our workflow is that, uh, I'd say, on the order of 40 to 60% of the candidates that we have found uh, have already been shown in the literature to work well for what we're looking for, but Uh, ended up not being used for other reasons that we're not looking at right now. And so that kind of gives us a gut check to say that, hey, the the things that our workflow are finding are things that people have already looked at. And so hopefully the things that we haven't experimentally tested yet might be good candidates too.
0: Oh, That's right because you're only looking at one of many important categories that you need to – or properties that you need to consider to – Actually, commercialize something. So your workflow is spinning out candidates that, according to your criteria, are good ones, but um, you know may not, you know may have already been proven to be not commercially viable for other reasons.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so that's where um, some of our research might be going in the future—to start looking at those other properties as well, so that we can really trim down our list and reduce the chances of. Uh, giving a bad recommendation to a, an experimentalist.
0: And so how do you envision scaling your workflow to these multiple criteria?
1: So that's something that we're actually looking to now, and um, we're still scoping that out. But the rough idea is to find uh, the Pareto front of multiple objectives and to try and balance where we want to be on that Pareto front, if you're familiar with that term.
0: Uh, elaborate on that. How, how do you go about doing that practically?
1: Yeah, so practically, we would first have to find another um, property that we'd be interested in. Let's say uh, stability of the catalyst or how uh, how long it'll stay there. Because if a catalyst operates for a few hours and then degrades into something else and stops working, then that's not a good catalyst, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that we might be looking into in the future. And our simulation our simulations can actually get a handle on how stable something is. And so what we would do is we would have a metric for uh, what we call activity or how fast the reaction goes, and we would have a metric for stability. And for all the candidates that we want to look at, we could evaluate how well it performs in each. And, I mean, there's no free lunch, right? And so each candidate is probably going to perform well on one and maybe not for the other. And so what we call our Pareto front is where – Let's say you have the, um, a certain activity, right? And you find, let's say you want to have the ideal activity of point 0.1. We can find the candidates that have that, idea, that ideal activity, but also are the most stable. And so that'll give us one answer for that particular activity. And then we can take a step to say, okay, let's look around materials that have an activity of point 0.2, a little further away. And of that, find the subset that are the most stable. And then we can get to continue that across the spectrum of activities and find a list of materials that are active and generally more stable than other candidates. And we would still get a list from there. But f- using that, that, we could down select our uh, material set even further.
0: Uh, what else do you plan on doing to kind of further this research line?
1: Yeah, so other things we're looking at are more intelligent ways to select the next experiments or the next simulations. And so, the, what I told you was uh, the the Gaussian selection. Mm-hmm. So right now we're actually having conversation with machine learning people at Carnegie Mellon University to figure out uh, what type of algorithms might be best suited for our application. Um, so there's that, and. Another way is to actually simply improve the regression methods that we're using right now to see if we can get better surrogate models that can be more intelligent about what to select and have a better prediction rate.
0: With the first of those, kind of an alternative to Gaussian selection, is there some intuition that you're pursuing as to what methods might be better or what might the characteristics of better methods be?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, Again, this is something that we're just starting to dabble in, and so we haven't really flushed the ideas out. But a lot of the active learning literature that we've seen so far is really centered around uh, Bayesian prediction and processes. And so that's something that we might look into to um, model our system with and maybe start selecting new candidates with.
0: And on the second direction that you mentioned, uh, improved models, What are you thinking there, or what what directions are you you, uh, looking at?
1: Yeah, so uh, that kind of has an interaction with the other things we're looking at. Like I said, uh, if we end up using um, Bayesian statistics to do the active learning, well, then that means our regression is going to be Bayesian-based. If we don't end up doing that, uh, I've toyed with the idea of actually using uh, neural networks to do these predictions. But... There's a decent amount of overhead work that we need to go into that, so we're still thinking about that, I'm not sure if we want to go that direction, but um using neural networks is probably if we chose to go that route, probably what we would do
0: okay and when you say overhead what uh what are you specifically speaking of computational or um the effort that that goes into just learning you know how to build out the models or what
1: I would say the effort going into building the models. Um, because the the way in which we turn our system into features uh, really matters a lot. And that's a really very active area of research in the field right now. But it requires uh, a lot of intuition, a lot of luck, and a lot of time to fit these models well, especially when we're looking at search spaces as large as ours.
0: Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking some time to share with us what you're working on. It's really cool stuff. Of course. You're welcome.